There is no such thing as a seeker. Romans chapter 3 says that there is no one who seeks for God. And so the seeker-sensitive movement, I think, where it really goes awry is that it assumes that there are genuine seekers. Welcome to Pastor's Scholar, uh, Bridging the Gap. Uh, we are examining how the church and academy influence each other. I am Chris Miller, your moderator. I am. We are all from Revolve Bible Church in beautiful San Juan Capistrano, California. And right across from me is our founding pastor, Ryan Day. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Christian Ministry and is currently pursuing his MDiv, Master of Divinity, from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Welcome, Pastor Ryan. And, of course, we also have our scholar-in-residence, uh, Dr. Corey Marsh, author and editor and professor of New Testament studies at Southern California Seminary in El Cajon, California. Welcome, Pastor Corey. Well, Professor Corey. You can call Corey. me Pastor. I can you call, call you me Pastor. You can I'm call sorry. me scholar-in-residence. <laughs> There's so many different titles you can throw in my way. So, there was one right before the recording that won't even show up on the recording. I was called a lollipop, so. <laughs> Um, Dr. Corey Marsh, he holds a BA in Biblical Studies, Master of Arts in Biblical Studies, Master of Divinity, and Master of Theology from Southern California Seminary, and received his PhD in Biblical Theology from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Wow, very impressive. Uh, it doesn't impress my wife or <laughs> most people who know me. No. It doesn't impress me. It doesn't impress doesn't Ryan impress. in any, right, in right, any right. way. So. <laughs> well, welcome, gentlemen. Let's get right to it. Uh, we're talking today about the spiritual decline of churches. And when you survey churches across the country, you just can't ignore the effects of the seeker-sensitive movement and the impact that it's had and how it has contributed in some ways to this decline. Um, what is the seeker-sensitive movement and how has it contributed? Well, uh, would you like me to go first? Or? Sure, yeah. You know, the seeker-sensitive movement, that's sort of a dated term, I think, now, um, for the last 40, 50 years is when it really got off the ground. Now we, it kind of conflated with the – conflates with the church growth movement, if you will. Um, but the seeker-sensitive mo movement um, at its brass tacks is really a form of pragmatism. Um, now, with good intentions, don't want to disparage the entire movement because there were good reasons for it. And what it was was to appeal to the seeker in God, or at least the assumed seeker in God. Um, the thought being that non-believers themselves are also seeking after God, so we need to cater to their needs. Out of that came, okay, well, let's make them as comfortable as possible. You know, and I would say this is more the negative results of it, and even the negative approach and methods they use were perhaps we shouldn't be preaching expository sermons for too long. Perhaps we should stay away from doctrines that are a little harsh. You know, for example, man's anthropology, you know, where he is before God, being a sinner, um, his need for repentance, those types of things. You know, that doesn't attract too many people. We want to fill the seats. We want the seeker to feel comfortable. So let's give them perhaps sermonettes or sermons that are from different translations to be able to cater to one's particular attraction of how they like the, the Word of God being read. From that, then it turned into music taking over the stage. And um, then, it, it, I mean, it just trickles down right to coffee shops and record shops and merchandise, anything to keep that seeker comfortable in the church. And, um, you know, I would say that it's, it's had a detrimental effect on the purity of God's Word and what He wants for His church, 
which is a community, to glorify him and be equipped and to go out and evangelize the lost, it now became more of a performance with the seeker-sensitive movement. It was, it was attraction. The attractional model is another way to refer to it. It's, it's, again, I want to go back to the intentions were pure, I think, at the beginning perhaps, maybe misguided, but it's based on a faulty presupposition that if you just make that non-believer feel comfortable in church, then you got them. And then they can get saved, you know. Can I ask you a quick question? Uh, did this also stem also from uh, the purpose-driven church and Rick Warren's uh, book, which, you know, began as a dissertation at Fuller Theological Seminary and then later morphed into um, what became the purpose-driven church? And it was, wasn't that sort of also, was that uh, part of what contributed to uh, this movement? Well, or? it certainly contributed to it. So I think most... Um, missiologists and church experts will pinpoint the seeker sense of movement with Willow Creek Church um, and Bill Hybels. Um, but Rick Warren most certainly would be the next in line. And some would probably maybe even say that, um, you know, did it start with, with Saddleback Church or Willow Creek Church? Um, sometimes it gets a little confusing because they almost sound like the same type of name, Willow Creek, Saddleback, you know, <laughs> it sounds like a very comfortable sounding name. Um, but um, yeah, I think most would actually pinpoint it to to Willow Creek. Uh, but with Rick Warren, just so everybody knows, the nice. reason why Saddleback is called Saddleback is because they're at the foothills of oh, the Saddleback, Saddleback Valley, Mountains. of course, right, right of in course. our backyard. Yeah. yeah right. So yeah. sometimes, anyway, that's just where they're right. It's just kind of a coincidence that it's, they're both comfortable sounding names. But yes, it's. I mean, I live a stone's throw away from Saddleback Church. It's the Saddleback Valley. The name's taken out of that, but. Uh, um, but yeah, Rick Warren's purpose-driven church most certainly, if, if, if we're not going to pinpoint into that, gave it a huge boost and made it very popular um, based on his dissertation work at Fuller and even at Southwestern beforehand on church growth models. And from what I understand, from what I have read of it, which wasn't much, but I have read some of it, um, he did adopt secular business techniques of how to attract customers, if you will, consumers, and apply that to an ecclesiological uh, framework, or try to at least, and the result was what we would call a secret sense of movement. Yeah, I, I think that's helpful, Corey. I appreciate that. I, I would maybe, I'm trying to think what I could add to that. This, Go ahead. Well, what has happened to preaching in America due to the sensi- secret sensitive, or as you called it, that church growth model? Yeah, I, I, I would just say that that there is no such thing as a seeker. Romans chapter 3 says that there is no one who seeks for God. And so the seeker-sensitive movement, I think where it really goes awry is that it assumes that there are genuine seekers. I think it's important to define what a seeker is. When we say there's no such thing as a seeker, we don't mean that people are not seeking spiritual realities or people are not seeking spiritual things. But when it comes to actually seeking God himself— What the natural man, according to the Bible, is seeking is the things that God gives, not God himself. The Bible says that before we come to Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. And when we come alive spiritually to God, that's when we want God and not just what he gives. So the seeker-sensitive movement actually seeks to give people something other than God. So the preaching that seeker-sensitive churches typically offer is not God-centered preaching. It's not preaching that exalts the glory of God. It's not expositional preaching. Uh, At our church, we're committed to expositional preaching, and what exposition is the adjective, preaching is the verb. So when we say preaching, preaching is the manner in which we present, which is that we herald the Word of God. Exposition simply means biblical. 
It just means that we're teaching the Bible. That's not appealing to a censor, a seeker, because the Bible is painting a picture of who God is and why we need him. But because there's actually no such thing as a seeker, the, the preaching then becomes something that tickles people's ears. It addresses felt needs. And so people will come to that because it, it becomes more of a self-help seminar than it does actually someone um, standing up and exposing who God is to the audience. So the seeker-sensitive movement has, I think, affected preaching in, in, a, in that it actually doesn't show who God is to people. Um, and a, that's a, and I know that's a broad stroke, but that's what I would say. The main issue is, and the as it as his effect of preaching. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. If I, if I can, he makes a good qualification where I think all people generally, would you agree with this, are seeking religious things, and and there's some sense they are seeking after God. After all, Ecclesiastes three eleven, I believe it is, so God has put eternity in man's heart, right? So there's this sense where everybody is seeking their Creator, but not in the sense that the seeker sense of movement believes so. They think if you just if you just cater to their need the right way, then all will be all the cobwebs are are are, are cleared and they can get saved. You know, I'm looking right now at Acts 17 when Paul is uh, on Mars Hill. <clears throat> and he was that wonderful sermon and he says uh, and he talking about God and he says in verse 26 of Acts 17 and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods in the bound, boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. It's, it, it's the imperative there is that they should seek God, right? And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And Paul's point is stop running from the God that there is. They're one true God. He is all around, of course. Now he's distinct from his creation, but you can't escape him. He's omnipresent, and you're accountable to him. And that might be what the seeker-sensitive movement, to use that term, may have lost along the way, this idea that people are held accountable to God and that though they are seeking after religious things, they are totally lost from the true God there is. And so to clear the cobwebs, you need to be preaching the word. You need to be calling for repentance and true conversion. Yeah, and I would say— it's. It, I don't. I think it's important to say too that when we talk about the seeker-sensitive movement, we're also not saying that people don't get saved in that movement. I got saved in the seeker-sensitive movement. I heard the true gospel. Um, God can use the things that the seeker-sensitive church does to save people, provided the true gospel is there. Um, but again, I think it's important just to say that. I think what Corey is saying is good, that there there is a sense in which that there's part of the movement that I think there is a, there is a desire to actually want to connect people with God. Again, I think that, that the important qualifier is, yes, we are to seek God, but, um, but the reality is, is because of our depravity, we don't actually seek after who God is. We just want the things that God can do for us. And I think that's where the, again— I'm probably being redundant, but that's where the seeker-sensitive movement really goes awry is they're, they're not offering God to people. They're just offering his stuff. I just wanted to get after um, quickly um, the, a recent Gallup poll that came out. Um, and this was a study that was re- released in June, and it was entitled U.S. Church Attendance Still Lower Than Pre-Pandemic. And in it, uh, there are actually some stunning statistics, actually. Um, 
from 2020 to present, the average attendance of U.S. adults to a church, synagogue, or mosque in the last seven days was 30%. So you kind of have a baseline, right, uh, of 30%, which means which was 10 percentage points lower than when they uh, did the survey in 2012. And um, among Protestants, actually, attendance is down 4%. Now, some people say, well, what about online? Actually, most people now, the majority of people are back in person and only 5% are online. So that's not contributing to this decline. So really, Protestants, those who profess to be Protestants, attendance is down 4%, 44% to 40%, which is that means that 60% of professing Protestants aren't regularly attending church. And when you look at that and you wonder, okay, well, what about all these church growth models that are trying to draw people in? 60% of Protestants even today aren't going, those methods are not drawing them in. Can you speak to that or? Yeah, I, I again, I, well, I think today's generation is, uh, what we're seeing is, is they're, they're, they're not, they don't want things that are superficial and they don't want a sales pitch. And I think that the the seeker sensitive movement has become so much like the world. And I think it's important. To, it's become so much like the world, but this, the church can't compete with, with the things that the world has to offer. The world is really good at being the world. And when the church tries to use worldly methods and carnal methods to reach people, it, no matter how good the church gets at it, uh, it still is kind of just weird um, because people expect the church to be different. Uh, and rightly so, the church is different. We're dealing with God. We're dealing with the divine. So I think part of why there's a decline in seeker-sensitive churches is because, number one, people feel like they're, they're being sold something because, again, there's no real preaching. They're not being, thus says the Lord. I think, number two, why would you go to church on Sunday morning when you could have just as much fun uh, doing something else in the world um, in, instead of going to church and enjoying whatever they're, they're peddling. So as it relates to the seeker-sensitive movement, I just think it's, it's, uh, it's an empty, there's an emptiness to it. And people realized, uh, I think during the pandemic, that when they stopped going, there was no difference in their life. So what was the point? Why even go to church? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm thinking as you're talking, if, if the pandemic, for all it's bad, um, something good that came out of it, if we can call it good, is that it did sort of shine a light on this very aspect of, of attractional church growth models, how defective they really can be, especially in times of need, right? Uh, I live a stone's throw away from, from Saddleback Church is where I live, and I don't want to be disparaging of that church at all. However, um, uh, it was right away where they had closed their doors, even at the first hint of uh, quarantines or any of those type of things before it actually became like an actual mandate. They were already closing down. And there's, well, I don't know, maybe 20,000 people that go to that church. Like, where are they going for spiritual needs, right? Where's the accountability? Where's the discipleship? Where's all of that? It just shut down. Uh, that Gallup poll is interesting. I was able to look at it and just glance at it quickly. Four points from what I remember. Um, there's a four-point decline of church attendance from 2016 to 2000. 23, where we're at right now. That's not too surprising. I'm actually kind of encouraged by that, that since the pandemic's been over, there's people are starting to come back to attendance. Um, but there's always going to be those people that got comfortable with just doing virtual everything, right? The more surprising number to me when I read that poll was the 10-point drop from 2012 to 2016. 
And from 1950 on to 2012, it was really, I mean, there was, there was 40% um, were, were, were not attending at that point. And that stayed kind of pretty much consistent all the way to 2012, right? So that 10-point difference is what's concerning. And it's interesting, right after that, I would say the neo-evangelical movement started in the 1940s, but really got off the ground practically in the 1960s, which did affect church growth models in the 70s and certainly the 80s. I think that speaks to that, you know, and I don't have the metrics to be able to prove that. But I do think that, if anything, the, um, the attractional model has actually uh, helped uh, um, um, in, uh, increase the lack of church attendance. Because if you really are, if, you're, if your mindset is to make sure that everybody in the seats is comfortable and do whatever you can to get them to your church— and not every, it's not like they do everything bad they can, but there are some questionable things, you know, to be able to attract people to your church. They're not going to stick around the moment it's convenient for them to leave. And that has, that was shown during the pandemic. You know, the ones that stayed open, the churches that stayed open were the expository churches that were generally pretty small, other than a few others, like Grace Community Church stayed open, of course, and there were some, but the, the, the churches that are committed to expository preaching and true doctrine you know, they stayed open and, and, and had ramifications, you know, because of it for the law. But people were getting saved and discipled during a, a period of national crisis, international crisis that was needed during that time. Yeah. I, our, at our church, we stayed open during that time and we grew. And the sister, our sister churches that I'm aware of, they grew as well. And we had several people converted during that time as well. So that's a great point. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that <clears throat> there are some seminaries now that have, they think, well, we've nailed down the um, techniques to bring people in. We've nailed those down. The problem we're having, though, is sustainability. And this is a trend you're seeing now in seminaries where it's like we've got the church growth part down. Now we're trying to figure out how to keep people. How do we retain people? Um, do you see this happening as well at, at your seminary? Or Yeah, you know, I, I'm thankfully I belong to a seminary that's – you know, that's, that's so centered on being biblically literate in all things. It's a true textual community. Uh, we are, the majority of our students are pastors and chaplains and missionaries who are like-minded. Not all of them are, but many of them are. And so during that time, even, it was um, not so much how do I grow my church and retain them, but how do I stay faithful to God in my ministry? That's, and thankfully, that's, it's a wonderful thing to see at my seminary. But that's not all seminaries. Um, across the board, what I have seen is, and this speaks to the overall drop of attendance in church and church membership in the U.S. over the last several decades, is that seminaries have had to pick up the ball where churches dropped it. Where all of a sudden it used to be you came to seminary for the intellectual study, intellectual formation around academic theology. The spiritual formation was happening at the local church. But because there's been such an overall drop in church membership and, and, and because of movements that are more attractional, that there's not true discipleship maybe happening and, and, and a love for God's word uh, being fostered. It's more about just attracting the people in and to keep them there, for, for, to retain them there. Um, that there's been this sort of explosive on the academic level of our curricula changing now to adding spiritual formation classes. Or it used to be you'd go to seminary for intellectual formation. Now we as professors have the added burden of spiritually forming these people that should have been getting that training in their local churches. So if, there's a, if there has been something that I've seen on the academic level 
um, in the classroom. There has been a, an overall drop. Our students are, are, like I said, they're for the most part, they are active biblical expositors and preachers and missionaries. But I have seen that there are, there are some that are coming in that are just, they don't have that spiritual formation they should have been receiving um, at the local church. And so now we are having to develop curriculum um, that helps form them spiritually um, because churches just simply have dropped that ball. I think one of the things that Corey and I have talked about as well, I, I came from a church tradition that did not emphasize education. They, for the most part, looked down on it. So I got into the academic world late. Corey and I have talked about um, that it seems like there seems to be a, a lack of rigor in institutions. I think that uh, a lot of academic institutions, they're wanting to grow and as a result of wanting to grow rapidly or become more broad, the the rigor in the academia is decreasing. It's easier to get an MDiv. It's easier to get – most pastors that I know now, when they have a master's degree, they have an MA. And for the listening audience, there is a big difference between an MA in theology and an MDiv. Um, an MA is about half of the education – maybe less than that in some schools than an actual MDiv that includes languages and other uh, and other rigors. So I think part of the way that the sinker-sensitive movement has maybe affected academia, and Corey, you can weigh in on your thoughts on this, is that I think the academy has, some of the academy has jumped on that bandwagon and said, and, and they've lowered their standards a little bit for a broader audience. That would be a, a That's thought. an interesting point. Thoughts? No, I, I think you're right. That's so so pervasive and influential has the attractional model been on the church level that it has affected seminaries, um, where also now the academic curricula has has changed and the credits required. It's an unfortunate thing. So I, I I'm a professor of New Testament, and part of my duties is to preach or teach the biblical languages. So New Testament Greek, Koine Greek, um, and it's unfortunate that other seminaries, very well known seminaries. Um, when they want more students in, one of the first things to cut is the language program because that's just off-putting to some. It's overwhelming. Who has time to study ancient Greek and Hebrew? So cut those out. Somehow retain your accreditation. You'll get more students. And that has happened with the larger seminaries. You see this explosive amount of people at certain big seminaries. And you look at the MDiv program, which would have been, that is the Master of Divinity, that classic gold standard pastoral academic degree um, from seminary. Well, the the bread and butter of that degree used to be the languages. You'd study three years of Greek and two years of Hebrew or vice versa, whichever language you want to emphasize in. And it took a while. That's why it would take three to four or five years to complete this stuff. Um, now, seminaries, they want to cut those out. It lowers the credit you know, requirement, kind of cheapens the degree a little bit, but you get more people in it. And I... Um, without being able to make a direct cor- you know, connection to the seeker-sensitive movement, that mindset of attracting people to seminary now to make it more palpable for, for the incoming student, there, is, there might be a similarity there. And I think that's one of the desires of this podcast, too, is that, you know, Corey has a real heart to bridge the gap between the church and academia. Um, and uh, at, the same, <laughs> at the same time, you know, as a, as a pastor of, and a, a church planter, I want to grow in my ability to interact with academia. That just makes me a better shepherd. So part of our heart is to encourage people through this podcast to uh, think critically about the things that they're hearing at church, about the churches that they're choosing to go to, um, because it really is our desire to, to try to bridge the gap. And 
Corey and I's friendship has, I think, benefited both of us greatly um, in some of the conversations that we've had together just as friends over coffee about the church and academia. And so we thought... We'll wrap up with this. Uh, We actually invented a uh, role for Corey, scholar in residence. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that came about? Uh, I want everybody to know that wasn't the title I gave myself. (laughs) I was given that title, okay? Mine was Master and Commander, I think yeah. it was, right? Just kidding. No, but I was given that title. It wasn't from me. Yeah, Corey I'm was. Not that, I'm not that pretentious, I guess. No, Corey was given that title. Um, and I I gave him that title after running it by our elders. I, I didn't come up with the title. I found, I found a couple other churches that do it. Um, the reason why we, we done, we've done that is a, there's a couple of reasons. Um, number one, we we were thinking about this is how do we use Corey? The Lord brought a scholar to our church and we want him to feel number one, that he's loved and appreciated. But number two, how do we fan into flame um, and support what God has called Corey to do, not just in the academia, but in our local church. So we needed to somehow identify him to our people. Uh, and so the title helps us to say, yeah, hey, Corey's a member of our church, but he has a very unique gift set that you as other members of Revolve Bible Church have access to. Um, Corey doesn't really have the time to serve as a lay elder right now. So Corey serves as a deacon. We believe at our church that deacons are assistants to the elders. We don't believe that uh, we think it's too narrow of an interpretation of the the word deacon to say that deacons only do the the physical things or the practical things and elders do the spiritual things. We see deacons as assistants to the elders, and deacons do do spiritual things as well. So we have given Corey a, a title of deacon. Again, what that does at our church, it just says, hey, Corey's a servant here. And the particular way that he assists the elders is he assists the elders in um, scholarship. He assists the elders in ironing out doctrine. He assists the elders in helping clarify concepts. Uh, but you as a church member also have access to Corey as well. And I think it's been a wonderful journey for our church to employ Corey in that way. And I think Corey has enjoyed that. Um, Have you? He hasn't enjoyed that. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that makes it work, and this is something Corey and I have talked extensively about, is Corey Corey has his, his Greek New Testament open when I preach on Sunday. And for a guy who's working through his MDiv, at first that can be pretty intimidating. But Corey's a pretty humble guy, and he's not there to critique. He's there to love God and serve God and worship God. And so Corey has been uh, a great encouragement to me personally in that regard. Um, But Corey will tell you, because he's humble, Corey is submitted to Scripture. Corey really believes that even though he's the guy with more degrees than Fahrenheit in the room, he also, though, those degrees do not make him above the Word of God, and he does not have a past to not be shepherded. And so Corey would be the first to tell you that, yeah, I'm a New Testament scholar, but I need to be pastored. And I would be the first to tell you as a pastor, yeah, I'm a pastor, but I need someone to help me grow in the technical aspects of my theology, of my Bible teaching, and so on and so forth. So it's been a, it's been a great um, partnership in the gospel, and it's mutually benefited uh, both of us, which in turn has mutually benefited the church. Yeah, I, I if I can just for a few minutes, and then I don't want to spend too much time, but um, I'll say this, there are many people in my position that have uh, PhDs in theology, in languages, in New Testament, Old Testament, what have you, 
um, that feel out of place in a local church. You know, there are pastors out there that are intimidated by those that might that are members that might be more educated. And yet, I'm a Christian. Anybody with a PhD who's a who believes in the Lord is, you know, we're Christians need to be fed like anybody else. We need to serve with our gifts and be served as well. And so, to to Ryan's point with with the uh, with Revolve Bible Church and the home that my wife and I have have found there, it's been wonderful because even giving this this kind of pretentious sounding title of scholar and residence, um, you know, I, I've kind of I've embraced that to own that. And even tomorrow, we're having you know we're having this some, a training session, and once every few months, I'm able to get up and present to the elders and the deacons and the church members there, um, expose them to what's happening in scholarship, maybe one or two themes that they wouldn't normally get. Who are the active scholars right now? What are the, the peer-reviewed journal articles coming out? What are the monographs that might be coming out or the commentaries that might be making an impact for good or bad? Um, it, it's, it's, it's a unique place. To, it's a unique um, ministry that I have at the church, which I, I feel really does bridge the gap to be able to expose our church members to academic theology as well. Um, and, I'm, and I'm privileged to be able to step in and do pulpit supply and, and, and teach classes and preach as well. Um, so I'll say this to those who are listening, those who are watching, I'm not the only one. Uh, there are a lot of active professors who are training pastors, just like I do, who don't get shepherded in church, who aren't able to be able to fan their gift into flame uh, as they're you know, commanded to by their own Lord because there is a pastoral staff oftentimes that are just too intimidated. What do you do with the scholar? What do you do with the theologian who's there? Embrace it. As, as Pastor Ryan has and the elders of Revolve Bible Church, because if you do that, you're going to bring the best out of that particular individual who will just benefit your, benefit your church and bless your church. And uh, I can say this and speak for my wife, Shannon, and I both. We, we, couldn't find, we couldn't be in a better place, you know, to be embraced with my unique gifting and calling to be able to serve the church and to be served. It's, been, it's had wonderful dividends in my own marriage, in my own spiritual walk, and, of course, our friendship between Pastor Ryan and I and with you, Chris, and with everybody that's at Revolve Bible Church. It's been just—it's been an absolute blessing. Mm. Well, Thanks, with that, brother. we'll wrap up. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for today, and thank you for watching.